0: listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Well, we're back in Daniel. Took a few weeks off. I needed a little head start, and we had some other special things that we're going to do, but now we're right back in Daniel, right smack dab in the middle of chapter number nine. We mired down a little bit in chapter nine. We're going to try to climb our way out. We're going to read today, beginning with verse number 20. We're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. Let me catch you up a little bit on what's happening in Daniel chapter 9. If you're new to us, if you're, if you're just arriving, you're like, wow, I came to the party late. Well, let me tell you, uh, Facebook, YouTube, uh, I know Apple Podcasts, and I think some of the other podcasting arenas have our Sunday sermons uploaded. So you need to go back and catch up, because there's a lot going on in the book of Daniel. But at this point in time, Daniel is under... The second nation that he's been captive under, this is the nation of Persia. Daniel, a a, a child of of Israel, specifically of the tribe uh, or the nation of Judah, has been serving as a, a court official for a number of years, several of decades. And as he's studying the book of Jeremiah, the scroll of Jeremiah, David encounters In chapters either 25 or 29, and actually they didn't have the chapters in Numbers, but wherever he was at in the scroll, he discovered that the prophet Jeremiah, years ahead, had said that the people were going to be in captivity for a time of 70 years. And Daniel begins the process of calculating, wait a minute, I've been been here almost 70 years. We're about to be done with this thing, and he gets so excited about it. But it causes him... To dive into a deep session of intercessory prayer. Because Daniel knows that for, for God's people to experience the blessing that he promises in that time of restoration, it's gonna require repentance. And so Daniel, on behalf of the nation, begins to pour out his heart and confess the sin of his nation. And he begins to beg and plead for God's mercy, for his restoration. God, please, please. Don't delay. Do what you promised. You're faithful. You're true. We're rotten. We're sorry. We're disobedient. But God, you are good. Please do what you say you're going to do because the time is almost there. Verse number 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. He's speaking of Jerusalem specifically, the temple. While I was speaking in prayer, the man whom we discovered was an angelic figure from chapters before, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight At the time of the evening sacrifices. Probably no sacrifices taking place, but Daniel, in his memory, knows that about right now, if we were back in our land, we would be enjoying the evening sacrifices. About that time, he came to me. Verse 22 He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginnings of your pleas for the mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you because Daniel, you are greatly loved. Let that sink in a minute. We come to God in prayer. We come to God in prayer on his terms with the right heart, with the right desire, with a surrendered and humble spirit. We receive a word from him. We might not hear it. We certainly are very likely not to see from an angel. But the reality of the fact that God comes to those who seek Him needs to sink into your heart and mind. He says, Daniel, I've brought you a word. I've brought you an answer because you are greatly loved. Therefore, he says, consider the word and understand the vision. And we're about to jump in to verses 24 to 27. And can I go ahead and tell you there is probably not a more hotly debated section of Scripture than Daniel 9, 24 to 27. I also want to tell you that chances are great I'm going to say something that maybe you're familiar with that others will disagree with. We're going to try to be faithful to what God's Word says. We're going to try to be honest about what God's Word means. We're going to do our best to, to try to decipher what we're supposed to do with God's Word. But this is a challenging passage. And because it's so challenging, I thought I would put to practice something that some of our folks have been doing now for the last few weeks. I've been teaching on Monday nights, uh, the Ridge Bible Training Center course, on Bible study methods and rules of interpretation. Interpretation. It's about a six or seven week class on how to study the Bible, how to understand it in context, and to sort things out, just you and your Bible and a few little tools. You say, hey, could I get in on that? Yes, you can. We'll schedule some others probably in the fall. I would love for you to take advantage of that. Right now, in our midst, Steve is gone. He's taken it. But right now, Marcus is the only one in the room that has been taking The Bible study methods course. And he's going to know that what I'm about to do today is stick to the script. I'm about to do today what we've been teaching these guys to do now for several weeks. We're about to look at this passage of Scripture, and we're going to do three things. We're going to go through a three-step method that everybody can, and it's a method that we do every week. We just don't always package it this way. When we come to the scripture, we need to first observe the scripture. Because in observation, it answers the question. You won't tell them, Marcus? Observate you know it. Observation tells us the answer to the question: what does it say? When we look at the Scripture and we look at the Scripture and we look and look and look, we discover exactly what it says. How many things are we going to discover about what it says? Oh, there's all kinds of things we can discover. Even before we ever get into the original languages and how these words were fit together at the time they were stated, there's all kinds of things we'll discover about the history and the timeline and who's speaking and who's listening and all that's going on in just observing the text because we want to know first and foremost What does it say as we observe? But then we'll take what we observe and we'll step into that second realm called interpretation. We move from asking, What does the scripture say? to the phase of interpretation. We try to answer the question, What does it mean? And while we might find many observations over the course of our study, many different things that we discover in the text, when it comes to what it means, there's only one thing. There's only one meaning. When God says what he says, he only means one thing. I've shared with the class over the last few weeks, anytime you're sitting around a Bible study or in a small group and someone accidentally says, let's read this passage and let's share what this Scripture means to you. That was a total accident. They didn't mean to say that. It just came out wrong. And you need to go, wait, 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 I know that was an accident because it's not a matter of what it means to you and what it means to me because it only means one thing. God is one, God says what He says, and He means what He says, and there's only one meaning. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll always get to that meaning. Sometimes we have to go, wow, I don't know. I'm stepping back away from here going, I th- I think this means this. And we weigh the evidence, and we weigh it theologically against other passages of Scripture, and we try to come away with as best we can what it means, if we can. But there is only one meaning, and some things are more Uh, restricted than others, meaning God anticipated we would wrestle, and I think he gets a kick out of it. Once we come to that phase of what it means, then we can move to the third phase, which is application. So observation, what's it say? Interpretation, what's it mean? And then we get down to application. Application answers the question, what am I supposed to do? It answers the so what question. It says what it says. We think it means what it means. Now, so what? What am I supposed to do with this? That's the basic method of Bible study. And we might find many applications, but we need to make sure that we apply it based on what it says and what it means. Because we apply it differently on what it means than we've made a tactical error, and we're out there trying to obey something God never told us to do. Does that make sense? Observation, interpretation, application. Let's get busy about it. We've got four verses to dig through. Here's the vision. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of a whole anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty two weeks, It shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come like a flood, and to the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Let's observe this text. In looking at it, let's answer the question, what does this mean? say. What does it say? Well, first and foremost, I think what we see is that God is answering Daniel's intercessory prayer by revealing to him more of his divine plan to his chosen people. That seems to be what is happening. Daniel's read Jeremiah 25, 29, He's hearing about the end of this and it seems like that God now is revealing to him what's going to happen now that the exile is coming to an end. It seems in verse number 24 that we have more time before Israel will experience her promised and full deliverance. God says, if my people disobey, I'm going to exile them out of the land And then ultimately, I'm going to restore them when they repent and call on my name. I will restore them and elevate them. It seems that what God is telling Daniel is that there's some more time before they're going to experience this deliverance. Almost like God is saying, Daniel, I hear your repentance, but I need to hear it from them. And they're going to repent, but it's going to be some more time. In fact, he says in verse 24, 70 weeks. Well, now as we observe, we get a little bit deeper, and we understand that he's not saying in 70 weeks like we understand weeks. We understand weeks starting on Sunday and ending on Saturday. Well, that's not what he's saying. It is a translation, but the word weeks is actually Hebrew for the plural sevens. What what God is revealing to Daniel is that there's going to be seventy sevens. And then these things will be complete. Well, what's going to happen during these seventy sevens? Well, he tells us right here in the passage. He says that the transgression will be finished. We're going to put an end to sin. We're going to atone for iniquity. We're going to bring in everlasting righteousness, we're going to seal vision and profit, and we're going to anoint a most holy place. But as we dig a little deeper, we discover that that word for place could actually mean a holy one. So we're going to anoint a holy one or a holy place. After seventy-sevens are accomplished, those things are going to be complete, those six things. We move into verse number 25 and we discover that these things begin with a word to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. It's a decree. That's what's going to set these seventy-sevens into motion. A decree to rebuild Jerusalem, you remember? Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem and he uh, he took captive some folks on the first wave. And then he came back again and he took some more captives and tore up some stuff. And then the last time he came, he just leveled the city, leveled the temple. So Jerusalem, from Daniel's standpoint, is in absolute, utter ruin. God says these 77s are going to start when the Word comes out to rebuild the city. Then he goes on to say that during the seven sevens and the sixty-two sevens, Jerusalem, right here in verse 25, is going to be rebuilt and an anointed one is going to come during troubled times. That's going to happen in the seventy sevens. An anointed one is going to come into the rebuilt city. He also goes on to say in verse number 26, that after the 7 and 62 sevens, holding on? you holding on? After the 7 and 62 sevens, and you go, wait a minute, that's 69. After, and how many are there are going to be? 70. After the 7 and 62 sevens, the anointed one here in verse number 26 is going to be cut off and he's going to be left with nothing and the city of jerusalem and the temple is going to be destroyed again by a group of people verse number 26 who belong to a prince who is to come interesting and wars are going to continue when after the 7 and 62 7, after the 69 sevens, the anointed one's going to be cut off. Jerusalem and the temple is going to be destroyed by a group of folks that belong to a prince that is to come. And there's going to be wars and desolations going on. Okay. Well, we are observing a lot right here in these four verses, aren't we? A lot going on. Verse number 27. It says that he, who is he? There's a little bit of debate about that, but it seems like the he is the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come will make a covenant with many. Well, who are the many? Well, who's this prophecy about? Go back to verse number 24. This is a prophecy, Daniel, about you and your people and your city. So, what's this covenant? Who's this covenant being made with? It seems like that it's being made with his people, the people of Israel, the people of the Jews. He's going to make it a, he's going to make it a covenant with the many for one week. Look at that. What were we missing? We were missing a week. Because how many were we prophesied? 70. How many have we seen already? 69. Where's that last week? Right there. Verse number 27. He's going to make a covenant with the many for one seven. Then in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven, which by the way, in the middle of the seven, where would you find? What would you find? You'd find what's halfway between seven and the end. Three and a half, three and a half, three and a half, seven. All right, so in the middle of the seven, so in a three and a half portion of the seven, he will break the covenant and he will stop temple worship. He's going to put away any sacrificial worship that the people are exercising. And then on the wing of abominations— all kinds of things that that could mean, but, but basically it's the idea on the basis of all kinds of abominations, he's going to make desolate the house of God and the people of God. So this prince that is to come is going to come in and seven, with, with one seven, he's going to make a covenant and halfway through he's going to go, psych. I was just kidding. I changed my mind. He's going to stop everything. He's going to bring to desolation God's people and God's place. But then the last part of verse number 27, we say this is going to happen during the 1-7 until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator, on the one who brings desolation. Who is that? The prince that is to come. Boy, we've observed a lot of things about 77s and 7 and 62 and 69, and that last seven we split it in half, and it's gonna be a good guy, turns into a bad guy. What in the world does all of this mean? Well, that's why we gotta bring our interpretation glasses and put them on. Now, how many interpretations are there to God's word? One. How many things does God mean when He says the one thing that He says? One. God always means what God says. We might not get it, but that's always what we meant, what He meant. We need to keep digging until we can figure out what He meant. I think at the end of the day, we can get as close to the one meaning by this statement. You ready? Here it goes. God's message to the Jews through Daniel, was that the end of their exile, the end of the 70 years, when they're going to be allowed to go back home, according to Jeremiah, would begin another period of set or determined time before they would get to experience the restoration He promised to them when they repented. You remember back in the 80s when, folks, or when things got sold on the television? And it was just 1999, 4 payments of 19 Call right now. 1-800-555-4433. And then there was something that, that as those commercials progressed, there was something that I always waited for. A phrase. You thought the commercial was over. And then the guy would say, but Wait. There's more. If you act right now, you can receive a double. Yeah, so you, okay. You know what this passage is saying? But wait, there's more. And I think Daniel was like, what? What? I don't think Daniel was as clueless as we are. So let's Let's put a lens on of interpretation, okay? Right here is where folks are going to go, I don't know. I think it means that, and I don't. Okay, we get it, all right? But the path that we're going to follow, if we can, okay? It's not a purely historical interpretation, thinking that everything that God has said has already happened. We don't land there. Okay, and 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 we're not going to follow a purely symbolic interpretation saying everything that God has said is symbolic and he was just saying a bunch of things that meant something, but they're not to be taken literally Well, that's what the pot we're gonna jump in. We're gonna jump in and we're gonna say did God say what he said? Yes You reckon God might have meant what he said? Yes, you think we might could take that literally? Yes, unless it's clear that He does not want us to take it literally, like plucking our eye out and cutting our hand off. Jesus is like saying, no, no, I'm not saying get your knife. I'm saying do what it takes to fight sin. Come on, people. Don't be morons. But when He says what He says and means what He says, then we got to go up and go, maybe He wants us to see this literally. And we're just going to jump into a bucket of folks that have understood this passage to refer to an announcement of the developing kingdom of God from the end of the exile all the way to the second coming of Jesus. That God meant what He said, and this refers to a time period that started here and will ultimately end here. Some of which is historical, and some of which is still future. Does that make sense? Nod if that made sense. Nod at me, Nathan. Okay. You say, who's in that bucket? Well, David Jeremiah, Tony Evans, Howard Hendricks, J. Dwight Pentecost, Charles Swindoll, Warren Wiersbe, J. Vernon McGee, John Walvard. You say, who are all those guys? Those are guys from Dallas Seminary. That's where I came from. That's why I think what I think. And you hear these guys on the radio, and you'll hear this from almost every Baptist church you'll ever go to, a whole lot of Bible churches, some Pentecostal churches you'll go to. There's a whole lot more of us that think God meant what He said literally. And we're going to try to work through it. Number one, what in the world are these weeks? How, how in the world are we supposed to understand that? It's a good question. Leviticus chapter number 25. God is talking to the people of Israel about a procedure He wanted them to embrace. Every seventh year was to be a sabbatical year for the land. God wanted every seventh year for the people to let the land rest. Don't plant anything. Don't gather. Don't harvest anything. Leave the fruit out there and everyone just go and pick what they need. Let God provide for you. How am I going going to survive if I don't have my crops to sell? Look, hey, has God provided for you before? Yeah. Well, how about let Him do it again? If He's saying leave the land alone, then He's got a plan. Let's let Him do it. Let's just be faithful to Him. So don't don't plant, don't harvest, just pick. Eat and, 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 and enjoy and let the land rest for a year. And then on the next year, you can start back. Then every 50 years or after seven periods of seven years on the 49th year, we're going to have another sabbatical year, but this is going to be even better. We're going to call this a year of jubilee. Why so so jubileously? Why are we so excited? Well, because this time, every 50th year, if you've sold your family property to another to pay a debt, you're getting it back. If you've sold yourself to pay off a debt, you're being released. Everything goes back to the way it was. Why? Because God says, look, I want the rich getting richer. I want the poor to stay poor. We want to settle that. You go, oh, well, we need that socialism. No, it's not. It's theocracy. There's a difference between socialism and theocracy. Socialism says, can we decide what everybody should have? The answer resounding is, we better not do that because we're bad people and we'll do things wrong. Can God decide what everybody needs? Every day, twice on Sunday. Let's let him do it, right? So. When God was saying how he wanted this done, verse number 8, Leviticus 25, he says, You shall count seven weeks of years. Seven times seven years so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Daniel knew Leviticus chapter 25. Daniel knew about the Sabbath years. Daniel knew about the year of Jubilee which we never did and I think probably has something to do with why we're in captivity. But I digress. He knew when God says 70 weeks, Bing! God's talking about 77s and we think he's talking about 70 periods of seven years. So if you multiply seven years times 70, how many years do we get, math class? 490 years. But wait, Daniel, there's more. 490 years more. That seems like a long time, Lord. Oh, I'm not done. Just hold on. So let's keep interpreting. Six things are going to happen during the 490 years. And remember, when we say 490 years right now, what I want you to do is I want you to let that number 490 sit in your hand right there. But I don't want you to close your hand on it. If I were to ask you how old you are, you could tell me, Because we watch the years progress and as bad as we want to at a certain age it to stop progressing We know it just keeps going But what I want you to do is hold that 490 number right there with an open hand Don't even I mean just work hard to keep your hand as open as possible on that 490 but keep it right there 490 years Okay He says six things are going to happen we find it in verse number 24 what does he say? He's going to finish transgression, going to put an end to sin. He's going to atone for iniquity. He's going to bring everlasting righteousness. He's going to seal both vision and prophet. He's going to anoint a most holy place or a most holy one. I think that three of these things have happened historically. Think about it. When Jesus Christ came and he went to the cross and he took upon himself the sin of the world, what did he do? He brought transgression to its ultimate end place because you will remember the words of Jesus on the cross just before he expired in real and actual death. What did he say, Al? He says, it is finished. Meaning that sin found its end point Right there on the cross on that day in the month of Nisan in the center, just outside of the city gates of Jerusalem. Sin met its defeat. So the transgression has ended. I think sin has come to an end. And I think that he has atoned for iniquity. Because what is Jesus? Is he not the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world is he not the propitiation for our sin that word that paul used talking about the mercy seat on top of the ark of the covenant jesus is like that mercy seat that propitiation for where the blood was poured no more blood needs to be poured out why because it's been atoned for so the transgression has been finished sin has ended The atonement has been made, but then he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, that seems to me like something that's future. You know why? Because I know me, and I know that righteousness does not dominate my life, and I know you. And if you're honest, you'll say righteousness don't dominate your life either. You struggle to be obedient and live according to God's Word. And sin most often clouds and muddies up that life you're living. So that seems to be future. He's going to seal both vision and prophet. Have all of the prophecies come to pass been fulfilled? I think not. It doesn't seem to me like they all have. Seems like there's still some that need to take place. Like, I haven't seen Jesus on a white horse and all that. I don't know. Anyway, I hadn't seen some things. So that seems like it's still yet future. And then that anointing of the most holy place or the most holy one. You said, Pastor Kevin, he's at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling from God's right hand. I know. But he said he was coming back. I ain't seen him rule yet. So that seems to me like it's future so while some things happened in the past it seems like there are some things that are going to happen in the future but it's all going to be within the realm of the how many sevens 70 how many years 490 now wait a minute pastor Kevin 490 years from the time that the decree went out to go rebuild the city 490 years has already happened. I know, that's why I told you to hold it like that right there. All right? Let's keep going. Verse 25, when did this decree go out? Well, we we might be tempted to say that when Cyrus, the king of Persia, made the decree for, for those to go back to the homeland in 538 B.C. was it. But if we read close enough in Ezra, we're going to discover that Ezra says, Cyrus says, go back and repair The temple. Not the city. The temple. And so they did. Ezra won under Zerubbabel and prophet Joshua. They went back and started the process of rebuilding the temple. And then Ezra showed up and tried to help him get things organized. And then a fellow by the name of Nehemiah got word that things weren't progressing and went to the king who was in charge 94 years after Cyrus, whose name was Artaxerxes, and he had a downcast face. And the king's like, why you look so sad, Nehemiah? He says, because my city is sitting in ruins and my people are struggling and I just want to go home and rebuild my city. Artaxerxes says, well, what do you need? Get, Get it together. Gather up everybody you need. Go do what you need to do to rebuild that city. Just come back when you're done. 444 B.C. Artaxerxes gave the word, the thumbs up, to go back and rebuild the city. Nehemiah chapter 2, 1 through 8. And that's what he says in verse 25, is that after seven weeks, Jerusalem, or the city will be built, And then, 62 weeks, which which runs into, throw that up there, Natalie. Verse 25. Know therefore understand that from the going out of the word to restore the building of Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Here's where the ESV, I think, mistranslates. Because then it says, then for 62 weeks. So it makes it sound like something's going to happen after seven sevens. And then something else is going to happen after 62 That's not the way the Hebrew reads. The New American Standard actually reads it better when it says, and there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It puts them right together. So he's saying, we got seven and 62, which means 69. You multiply that times seven. How many do you get? 483 years. He says, in the 483 years, an anointed one is going to come. Now, here's where it can get a little squirrely, okay? A fellow by the name of Sir, uh, let me find his name, Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book in 1894. Anybody around during that time? Of course not. 1894, Sir Robert Anderson, studying this passage, wrote a book called The Coming Prince. And what he started doing was going, all right, 483, if 444 B.C. is our starting point, and we're looking for an anointed one to come, how might that work out chronologically? Chronologically. What might that look out? How would it play? And the first thing he had to discover was, wait a minute, the Jewish people operated under the lunar calendar, which represented 360 days a year, 12 months of 30 days each. And periodically, they had to add a month so that they didn't end up celebrating the a festival of first fruits back when the time you had to plant it. So they knew they had to add a month every now and then because the solar calendar and the lunar calendar is a little different. We follow the solar calendar. We follow the times and we have leap years and we have months with different days and all that to keep the seasons because we're not smart enough to add a month every now and then. We have a hard enough time adding a day. So Sir Robert Anderson said, Well, I just wonder, Natalie, put... put I hesitate to even put this picture up here. She's going to find it. So, Walter Anderson, Robert Anderson, put up. She's going to get it here in just a second. It's going to show up. It's that first. Yeah, that one. All right. I know I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay over here. 69 weeks is seven years at 360 days per year. gives us one, 173,088 days. I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm holding this like this, y'all, okay? I'm holding it with this hand, right? All right. But... Sir, Walt, Sir Robert Anderson and a more contemporary of him, Dr. Harold Honer, a chronologi- chronolo- chronologist from Dallas Seminary, where I'm from. But at any rate, in 1995, took his numbers and said, well, let's just look at this. If 444 B.C. is when it started, let's add... 33 AD, which is around when Jesus was crucified, around when Jesus came into the to the city. Let's add those gives four hundred and seventy-seven years. Say, Pastor Kevin, that's still not four eighty-three. We need four eighty-three. All right, well, but let's think about the fact that in that calculation, we went from B C to A D. And so, number 1 B.C. and number 1 A.D. is not two years. It's actually one year. we got to make sure we don't add the one in there. So, we got to subtract here. You say, Pastor Kevin, you're going the wrong way. We need some more years. You're subtracting years. I know, but let's just be fair. So, 476 years at 365 days a year gives us 173,740 days. Let's add 25 days. It's not arbitrary. Let me tell you what he's doing. Roughly... The decree to go build the city from Artaxerxes and Nehemiah happened on the first day of Nisan, 440 B.C. The date that Jesus rode in to the city triumphantly on the back of the donkey that had never been ridden before was roughly 10 of the month Nisan of 30 to 33 A.D which if you calculate it over time, is not just nine more days. It's actually more 25-ish days. So he adds 25 days to that. That's why that little asterisk is there. If we consider the number of leap years that we need to add or for days, then then ultimately look what we come up to. We come up to 173,880 days. That's about how much we need. And what does it seem like that happened after about 483 years of time but a fellow riding into Jerusalem with folks lined up with palm branches and uh, and, and cloaks laying it out shouting Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I say Pastor Kevin you think that's on the dot not necessarily but man he didn't really have to jump through too many hoops to get there right what's happening exactly what God said after 69 after 62 and 7 weeks an anointed one's going to come and he's going to be cut off almost immediately when that day is over what do the people start to say we'll get rid of that Natalie they're going to be looking at that it's going to drive them crazy So you need to get rid of that, okay? I'll share it with you. I'll give you you the the data that goes with that if you want to run them rabbits. Bottom line is, man, that's, that's really eerily close, ain't it? And it's not eerie. It's just right exactly what God said, right? I mean, it's just right in line with what God said. But then he says in verse number, oh, let me back up. Luke 19, 37 to 44, write that down because you're going to want to go read that. Because as Jesus is coming in, the Pharisees are going, hey, how about tell these folks to stop hollering? Jesus says, if they don't say it, somebody else will. And who was that somebody else? The rocks are going to cry out. And Jesus began to weep over his city because he said, if you had only known the day of your visitation if you would have just put two and well 62 and seven together and brought it down you have recognize that whoa wait a minute god's fulfilling the very thing that he promised he would do with this anointed one but you don't realize it and so therefore you're missing it and what did they do we don't want him we have one king, and his name's Caesar. This man's not going to rule over this. And so it says, verse 26, after the 430, uh, 83 years, what's going to happen? This one's going to be cut off. We'll not have him. But this is after the 69 weeks. See why I had you holding them 490 right there? This is, at, well, what else is going to happen after this 69 weeks? Well, then one one's going to be cut off, and then the people of a prince who is to come is going to come in and destroy the city and the temple. What happens 40 years after Jesus is crucified and ascended? A fellow by the name of Titus, the son of Emperor Vespasian, comes in and wipes out the city of Jerusalem, completely and utterly destroys the temple. Well, okay then, that's the people of the prince, except that prince didn't make any kind of covenants with anybody. He didn't break any kind of promises. So it seems like, like that way back when we were studying chapter 7 and 8, when we went, hey, there's going to be a king, he's going to come along, he's going to sacrifice a pig on the altar, and folks are going to go, that's the guy! And they're going to go, no, 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 that's not the guy, but he sure does look like the one who is to come. That little horn from Daniel 7, that little horn from Daniel 8, who we look forward to through what Jesus said about the one who's going to come, and Paul said about the one who's going to come, and then uh, the Revelation identifies as, what antichrist the people of the prince who is to come is going to destroy the city happened in 70 a.d you say well then what comes next well verse number 27 says then he the prince who is to come will make a strong covenant with many for one week that's the week we've been missing has that happened yet I ain't seen it. You know what I have seen? I- I've seen wars and desolations happening in Israel. Is it not happening right now? Is the West Bank not getting hot and heavy again? We're we not chunking missiles back and forth? Has that not been happening your whole lifetime? You say, yeah, but Israel's a state again. Well, that's why we better wipe off our binoculars because things might be closer than they appear. But them wars are still happening. Them struggles are still going on. I ain't seen no covenants that last and get. So that must still be going to happen. We're holding them 490 real open. Because in 33 AD, the time stops. Boom. What are we going to do? Well, Jesus says, we're going to go into all the world. And we're going to preach the gospel to every creature. We're going to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Look, we're going to start a whole new thing that Paul in Ephesians chapter number 3 says was a mystery to the Old Testament. They had no idea this was happening Jesus. I tell you what, y'all just go and spread the gospel. Y'all go make disciples. I'm going to go away and I'll come again to receive you unto myself. And that'll be right about that time that the knucklehead's going to come in and say, have I got a deal for you. Just sign right here, we'll have peace Three and a half years later, he's going to stop it. You go, what are we talking about? Seems a lot like what Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, called the tribulation. It, it sounds like those three and a half years of 42 months that you find in Revelation 11 and 13 sounds like them 1260 days of tribulation in 11, Revelation 11 and 12. Seems like this time, times, and half a time that we see in Daniel and Revelation. Natalie, let's just do a little re- quick review. Let's put these next up. We're talking about this. See, I told you, a lot verse these four verses. We're talking about 70 weeks, 490 years. Starting with 444 B.C. going all the way to 33 A.D. Gives us the 483 years, the next little block of time. Has to do with Israel, the Jews, Jerusalem, the temple, the Messiah coming. And then after he comes, he's rejected. He's cut off and we step into another period. It's undetermined. It's a period of time that we don't know when it's going to have an end. We know when it started. We don't know when it'll begin. What are we calling this? We're calling this the church age. When everybody comes, Jew, Gentile, don't matter your background, your ethnicity, everybody can come, but you can only come by faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. And when that time is complete, then God's going to Hit the start button and bring us into that last seven years. Where again, Israel and the Jews and Jerusalem and the Antichrist and tribulation is going to bring this 70 weeks into conclusion. You're like, that's all right there in Daniel? Well, it's there and a lot of other places. But I want to read a few verses and then we're going to dismiss because the kids are going crazy. When's this all going to come to an end? I believe it's going to come to an end with the return, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Revelation nineteen eleven. I love this verse. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. We already saw this in Daniel chapter 7. We saw Him enshrouded in the clouds. One like the Son of Man listening to and following after the Ancient of Days. He's coming in the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, John says, amen. Look at Zechariah chapter 12, verse number 10. Here's a prophecy back after Daniel, but before Jesus arrives. He says, I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they, Daniel, I love that you're repenting on their behalf. But I need to hear it from them. When that day comes, they will look on me, God says. Me on whom they have pierced. God the Son it is. And they shall mourn from Him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over Him as one weeps over a firstborn. Zechariah 13, 1, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. That's what it says. We think that's what it means. And you're like, what am I supposed to do with that? supposed to walk away and go home today going, boy, I know the Lord spoke to me. Well, I think it's not too far from where we're going to land. Listen to this. What can we do? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that this passage is speaking directly to the Jews, but it has connection to us because we're in this time. Now, we might not be in the 69 We might not be currently in the seven weeks, but we're right there in the middle when Jesus says, Now I got a job for you to do. First and foremost, we need to recognize that the course of human history has been charted and determined by God. Now, God ain't decided how you're going to respond, God hadn't made your actions for you. You still have your free will. But we're in a book on God's shelf. It's just as completed for Him as it ever was. It's done. It's finished. He's going to do just exactly what He said He's going to do. And it's going to work out exactly like He said so. First and foremost, we can just step back and recognize, I don't have to worry about this because it's already determined. Number two, I can recognize that my time in this 490 years is limited and that nothing is prohibiting the seven weeks that's still to come. My time's limited. I don't have an endless amount of time. I've got to be busy about what I've been called to do. So first and foremost, if you're here today and you've never surrendered, to the gospel of Jesus, Him crucified, risen in your place and for your sin to provide for your salvation and your redemption, then your first step is to say, my goodness, what a privilege it is to be given the opportunity to come to know God by faith in Jesus and trust Him fully and completely, holding nothing back if you don't know Jesus today Today is the day to receive Him. Because you might not have tomorrow, you might not have this afternoon. You say, Pastor Kevin, I know Jesus as Savior. Well, then here's what we are to do. You ready? We are to wake up from our sleep and from our distraction. And from our thinking that all these earthly connections are somehow more important than they really are, we need to wake up and get busy about what we've been called to do. The students heard it last week, and those of you who were here heard it too. What we've been called to do is make disciples. How do we respond to this? The time is short. The call is clear rub the sleep out of our eyes, and get busy making disciples. When it comes to those around the world, a friend of mine said, I heard just this week, we, need to, we either need to go or send or disobey. Those are the only three options. Either go to all the world, send somebody to all the world, or just live in disobedience because those are the only choices that Christians have. But we can all go right here. So here's one I want to challenge. You say, what's, what's my job? Based on Daniel 9 24 to 27. Here's your job. I want you to look for one, at least one conversation that you can have about who Christ is to you. And you say, Just this week, I just want you to do one. And when you get that one done, if there's any time between that one and next Sunday, don't you look for another one? And you have that if there's enough time between that one and next Sunday, I want you to look for another one. I think the more we look for opportunities to represent the one who gave himself for us for the purpose of making disciples, the more we're going to discover are right in front of us. What are we to do with this? Get busy, Christian. We got a job to do, only we can do it, because that's what God's given us to do. Let's don't trifle about the ins and the outs. Let's trust Him. It's determined it's going to happen. Let's do what He's called us to do. Amen? Well, let's stand up. Can you imagine that we got through all of that and I only went over like five minutes? Okay, ten, but nobody's counting. (laughs) Father, we thank You for the day. We thank You for Your love. We thank You for Your Word. I know that I had to have left out a whole lot of stuff in that, Father. I pray that You will fill in all the blanks. That you'll fix what I messed up. I know that it's, it's, it's a, a broken man's attempt at trying to understand something wonderfully complex. But ultimately, it doesn't change anything about what our job is. We're to make disciples. We're to take the truth of your son crucified in our place for our sin, raised victorious to those who have not yet trusted. Lay it before them. Invite them to receive. And then teach them how to follow Jesus. And how to go make more. God, we ask that you will burden us to that end. That we will not be able to rest until we wake up and get busy about what you've called us. I pray that you would save those that may be outside of the family. Show them that there is only one name by which they can be saved. His name is Jesus. We thank you for him. We thank you that he is at your right hand. We thank you that you are going to give him the word, and he's going to return as king and Lord. And that's the thing that we've got our hope set on. So we say, come on back. We're ready. But if you tarry, give us the strength to be about your business. We love you. We thank you. First, in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said...